0: This is Audible. Tantor Audio presents Thunder Below, The USS Barb Revolutionizes Submarine Warfare in World War II by Eugene B. Fluckey, Rear Admiral, U.S. Navy, Retired. Narrated by Corey Snow. Preface This is the history of the U.S. submarine Barb while she was under my command during World War II. It is written in the sense of the lively non-fiction that it was. Reconstructed conversations abound to breathe life into the story. These have a factual basis from the written log, reports, messages, letters, notes, and oral histories made during and after World War II, stories that the Navy Department's Public Relations Office asked me to write for their publications, reunions, interviews, and an illegal diary kept by a shipmate. One crew member who reviewed the manuscript remarked, You must have had a tape recorder. Regarding the events depicted on other submarines, their stories are taken from reports, both Japanese and their own, personal conversations with the captains involved, and consummate knowledge of how they operated. There are two divisions for the Japanese Command's. The naval warships made voluminous after-action reports that depicted the gallant and courageous fights to save their ships. The actual names of the captains and the convoy commanders are used where made available. The individual merchant ships' actions were derived from my personal observation during the battles, interrogation of Japanese prisoners we picked up, and reports made to the shipping companies that were obtained by the Japanese Department of War History. Our outstanding Wolfpack commander, Admiral Elliot Laughlin, verified the Barb's actions on three patrols. Conversations between Fleet Admiral Chester Nimitz and Admiral Charles Lockwood, the Submarine Force Commander, were related to me while I was Nimitz's personal aide when he was Chief of Naval Operations after the war. All messages, letters, and the diary are verbatim. My extensive research occupied over ten years Japanese officer friends assisted me while I was in Tokyo and afterward through correspondence. This enabled me to unfold the factual Japanese side of events, where known. In June 1991, I conducted my research in China. My objective in Thunder Below has been to provide the reader with the best and most complete account of every attack, whether against land or sea targets, as reported by those concerned. There are still mysteries to unravel due to the disappearance of certain records, but I have not fabricated this history. I was there. When I joined the BARB in January 1944, war with Japan was in the limited offensive stage, Japan having reached the maximum limits of its empire. U.S. submarine warfare was to be intensified to strangle Japan, The Central Pacific Drive was ready to begin, as was the movement of the Southwest Pacific Forces into New Guinea. The South Pacific Forces had taken Guadalcanal, the North Pacific Forces were to take the Aleutians. Now we would begin the tightening of the steel belt around Japan. The Chinese army could not be deployed, for it was engaged in a major Japanese offensive in China. The overall Japanese and Allied forces were relatively equal. Unscathed, U.S. production was steamrollering along at flank speed. Time 1953 Everyone jumped up in alarm. I made a dash for the conning tower. The ominous sounds, continuous rubbing, clanking, and scraping noises against the hull had everyone in a tizzy. Are we in a minefield? Dave, what have you seen through the periscope? Nothing but a couple of sandpans at a distance. I took another 360-degree swing. We're towing two red flags astern. Pass the word to the crew before they use up all the remaining oxygen that we're caught in a fishnet. Start the fathometer. Forty-six fathoms, sir. I'll stop. Starks, take her down easy to 150 feet. Maybe we can get out through the bottom of the net. At worst, we'll drag the red flags out of sight. With their movement, some fishermen may think they've caught a whale. The clankings and scrapings continued. Bob and I conferred. Sounding forty five fathoms. Frank ease her down to two hundred feet. Maintain a slight down angle. We'll try backing her clear. two hundred feet, two degrees down angle. All back full. Try to keep her between one hundred fifty and two hundred feet. We'll back for ten minutes. Time twenty twenty. The clankings stopped, then the rubbings and the scrapings. We were clear. Sighs of relief. Time twenty one thirty one. What luck? We were caught in another net, the same noises grinding against the hull. Stand by to surface. Arm the four-inch gun crew with knives ready to come up to the bridge and cut us free. Time 2141. Surfaced. The barb was covered. Bridge, shears, and deck were encased in a strong net of line as thick as your thumb. In the last of the twilight we lay to. The cutting party, augmented by the rest of the gun crews, climbed all over the topside, unleashing the barb once more. I noted that piles of clippings were passed down below as souvenirs. The material of the nets intrigued me because it was so difficult to cut. It was made of neither twine nor hemp and was three-quarters of an inch in diameter. Prying a bit apart, I found it was made of an exceedingly tough rolled wax paper. The whole net was buoyed with wood and weighted with lead pellets and rocks. Quite ingenious. "'Hey, Captain, we got a problem,' Swish called from the deck aft. "'Not so loud.' We have four sampans at about 3,000 yards. Come forward. Sir, this net is wrapped tight around the propellers. We can't pull it loose. Someone has to dive over the side, follow the net down, and clear the screws. Wow! In this 34-degree water? Who's our best swimmer? Treville Houston. Has he done any diving? Has he? You know that 100-foot diving tower at Pearl where we trained to escape from a submarine? Well, he's the only one I know of who's dived in at the top, swum down to the bottom, and back up again without any outside assistance. Sounds like a human fish. As he's the first loader for the four-inch gun, he's somewhere down on deck with you. Both of you come up to the bridge. They arrived. Houston volunteered. I can do it, sir. I need to put on my flannel underwear and a diver's belt with a knife. Swish can hand-pump air to the face mask. The props are fifteen to eighteen feet below the surface. It'll be very dark down there. We couldn't use lights because of the sampans, but we could bring the props closer to the surface by flooding the bow tanks. That should bring the props up to about seven feet below the surface. Fortunately, the barb was only a thousand miles below the Arctic Circle, so this dim twilight might last for another hour. Houston, you should be able to see the shape of the props. Now let's get cracking and bring some towels and blankets up. In jig time, Houston was over the side and clawing his way down the net to the props. Five minutes later, his head bobbed up. He was hauled on board. Trouble. Swish, the airline is too cumbersome. Let's use the mask plug. I need a few more dives. Good God, it's cold. He dove in again. In four minutes he reappeared, gulped a few deep breaths, and disappeared again. After several more performances I became worried and told Swish to bring him aboard. Houston had now been in the water almost thirty minutes. Swish gave two jerks on the tether line and Houston's head bobbed up alongside. Swish wanted him out, but Houston objected. Captain, he's almost finished cutting the net loose and wants to finish the job now. Okay, but he's lost a lot of body heat. It's dangerous. Tell him not to overdo it. Down he went for almost five minutes, came up, gulped air, and went down again. I sent for Doc Donnelly. Doc, get down on deck and get Houston aboard. He'll kill himself or get pneumonia. As Doc headed aft, Houston emerged, holding his fingers on high in a V, but he was too far gone to climb aboard. The men on deck formed a human chain and lifted him up bodily. He was shaking so badly he could hardly move. Wrapped in swaddling blankets, he was passed down through the after-torpedo room hatch and on to his bunk. Doc started working on him with medicinal brandy. We cast the slashed net over the side and tested each shaft at slow speed. No noises. No noises. The Barb was ready to answer bells. At dawn, before my customary trip to the bridge at the end of Navigator's Twilight, I dropped by Houston's bunk to see how he was doing. Doc was resting in a chair next to him and motioned for me to be silent. Then he gave a thumbs up as our diver slept. I tiptoed away, happy. 30 August, time 12:15. Received an ultra-message on a convoy departing Takao, southern Formosa, heading for Manila. Ed swung into action, ordering the pack to an intercept spot. At full speed, we headed for the Bashi Channel, 50 miles south of Formosa. All of us were forced down a few times by planes. At 0120, 31 August, we sighted smoke and received a contact report from the Queenfish up ahead. We were receiving radar interference from three other subs. Tuck took the barb to flank speed and headed for the smoke until plot could give us a better intercepting course. The Commodore soon joined me on the bridge. Ed, Queenfish is some six miles ahead. With this three-quarter moon, she will attack submerged. Tunny is about five miles on our starboard beam. From radar interference, we have one of Ben's Buster's subs up ahead. She has probably sent a contact report to bring her sisters into the ballpark. Stand by for a circus with two wolf packs jumping on the same convoy. This is an open area with Donk's Devils gone, so it's free-for-all. Concur, Jean. I can't coordinate the other pack. This one isn't in the books. But based on our positions, have Barb be the starboard flanker. Time 0143. Radar has a night flyer coming in fast! Ed dropped down with the speed of a gazelle before Tuck's voice boomed out, Clear the bridge! Dive! Dive! Other gazelles, quartermaster, lookouts, myself, followed with Tuck Last, snapping the hatch shut. No bombs fell, but our plane was circling. Radio reported, Queenfish attacking! Forty minutes later, four torpedo explosions brightened the sky, setting the 4,700-ton tanker Chioda Maru on fire. Time 0240. At moonset, the tanker sank. The barb surfaced, for we had no contact with the nine-ship, five-escort convoy. Then we sighted a plane three miles astern after another sub, but we did not dive because we had to move fast on the surface to regain contact. From listening to some twenty-five to thirty assorted depth charges and bombs being dropped, we knew the queenfish was being held down and the convoy evading northeastward. Several planes were working within three to four miles. Time zero five twenty six. We sighted ships and went to battle stations' torpedoes. The gongs silenced the distant depth charges. Ed joined me and I explained the setup. We had unknown subs ahead, left, right, and astern, so we were in prime position. There were eight ships left, five escorts and eight planes patrolling. We were a starboard flanker, but the enemy had changed his base course from 90 degrees to 160 degrees. Zigging, they were an hour away. We'd go deep and fast to work into a center position. Time 0624. In the starboard column were a freighter and a tanker. In the center column, freighter, tanker, freighter. In the port column, tanker, tanker, freighter. A mine layer was the lead escort ahead of and between the starboard and center columns. Our position ahead of and between the center and port column was a dream. We made ready all tubes. Bob, a few more minutes and we can wipe out the center column and get the leading tanker in the port column. Time 0625. Signal flags going up on the escort. One of the subs had been sighted. Sound reports torpedoes running, headed toward us. Bob, keep J.P. Sonar on those torpedoes. I'm sure they're from a sub, not the escort, so they won't be set deep. Time 0626. Wham! 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 Two hits just blew up the escort just as she was running up signal flags for a turn movement. "'Sound reports torpedoes coming right at us!' I kept the periscope down so we wouldn't be hit and told sound to let me know when they passed over us or if any sounded erratic. The whole formation changed course to the east. Damn! If only we could have shot first! Wham! Wham! Two more torpedo explosions— then through the hush came the eerie high-speed whine of torpedoes passing directly overhead. Ed said, "Jean, thank God we're not on the surface." Ed, those must have come from my classmate Eli Reich in the Sea Lion. He always shoots a nestful, with success. Time zero six thirty. Bearing is on the largest ship leading the center column. Angle on the bow is ten degrees starboard. The lead ship of the starboard column is missing. Max. Mind your torpedo data computer. We'll shoot the stern tubes at this ship in a minute as soon as we pull out. Use the same ship speed as you had before. Range will be about 750 yards. Phone talker, tell Jackson and Raglan to take four cases of beer out of the officer's shower and put them in the cooler. Muffled cheers were heard throughout the boat. Smiles were seen all around the conning tower. Time 0633. Up scope. Bearing. Mark. Down. Down. "'Angle on the bow, 70 starboard. "'Range 800 yards. "'Final bearing and shoot. "'Time 0634. "'Final bearing. "'Mark. "'Set. "'Fire 7. "'Fire 8. "'Fire 9.' "'The barb jolted as the torpedoes whooshed out on their lethal path. "'J.P. Sonar, get on those torpedoes! "'Sonar reports all torpedoes hot, straight, and normal.' "'We had a nice overlap astern of the freighter, "'with the tanker in the port column about 500 yards beyond, "'so if they had increased speed, she'd catch the first torpedo.' Ten seconds to hitting. Time 0635. Wham! Wham! Beautiful! The first hit the stern of the freighter, the second amidships at the after end of the superstructure. Wham! The third hit caught the tanker amidships. Suddenly we heard a click, bang, as a depth bomb went off astern. A steady string of explosions followed. Depth charge indicator shows depth charge pattern astern and explosions all around. Then came a muttered, it's a wonder it doesn't show tilt. Rig ship for depth charge. Stand by watertight doors. Time 0640. Higgins, rudder amidships. Steady as you go. Up scope. The freighter is upending, sinking stern first. Quick, Ed, take a look. Jean, she's going down, going down. Gone! Down periscope. What's left of the convoy is swung around to the northwest, well beyond the range of the torpedoes. Looks like they're returning to Tacao. We couldn't surface with the air cover peppering the area with bombs, but we secured from depth charge and battle stations. We would splice the main brace at 1100 to give the beer a chance to cool. We set course westward in case the convoy turned south again. Before we turned in, Ed and I went to find out from the ship recognition manual what ship we had sunk and what we had damaged. It had been a long night, and we needed to rest. Anything might happen." "'Unbeknown to us, the Tunny was making an approach on the same freighter "'and was almost ready to shoot when our torpedoes slammed into her. "'What a disappointment for them!' "'I took a swing through the boat to have a few words with those members of the crew "'who were not lined up at the heads holding their water. "'It had been too long a night. "'In the after-torpedo room cheers rose as I entered. "'The place was humming with activity and noise as they reloaded torpedoes in the tubes.' Buell Murphy and Sidney Shord were directing their Huskies, Houston, Richard Maxwell, and Rourke, while Gunner's mate Joseph Petrosinus was already changing the empty torpedo skids into bunks. As I went forward into the maneuvering room, Ezra Davis lifted one finger. Captain, one down, four to go? Well, if that damaged tanker sinks, it would help. Turning to Dallas Bowden and Norman Larson, I asked, How's our battery? Almost a full can, sir. We topped off until we dove. The after-engine room was blessedly quiet, submerged. Chief Franklin Williams, Walter Price, and Clarence Spencer were busy replacing an injection valve, so I didn't tarry other than to tell them planes would probably keep us down for at least four hours. Knowing that Ed was waiting, I buzzed through the forward-engine room where Elliman, Norman Weirsch, Rudolph Schmidt, and William Whit were standing easy. Whit, we want to make your first patrol in the barb exciting for you.' They all laughed at his response. "'Thanks a heap, Captain.' Will it be like this every day? Back in the wardroom, Ed was leafing through the manual. Using bow and stern shapes, superstructure, and positions of funnels, kingposts, and masts, one could find the class of ship. The freighter we sunk turned out to be the Okuni Maru, 5,633 gross tons, built in 1936. The tanker we hit was the Maru 9,181 gross tons. The Okuni Maru's lifeboats had yellow and black striped sails. Exhausted, we all decided to skip breakfast in favor of sack time and sweet dreams. If only there weren't that frequent drumming against the hull of bombs and depth charges. Time 1037. A closer bomb explosion banging against the hull brought us all out of our bunks. Max, the watch officer, passed the word that air cover had intensified. None were on us, yet all were dropping bombs at intervals and returning for reloads. Time 1115. Now hear this. In honor of your splendid performance last night and this dawn, which resulted in the sinking of the freighter Okuni Maru and the damaging of the tanker Riko Maru, which I hope has since sunk, I beseech all hands to follow our ancient naval custom and splice the main brace. Your most capable chief of the boat, Swish Saunders, with the doughty assistance of Turnage and Jack Kerrigan, has released four cases of beer from the cooler to be slaughtered. Doc Donnelly is offering his medicinal whiskey to anyone who prefers such to beer. For the beer, I propose three cheers. Hip-hip! Hooray! Hip-hip! Hooray! Hip-hip! Hooray! Tongues hanging to their knees, the crew made a mad dash for the control room. According to Tomzik. This beer is so good I'm taking a sip every couple minutes to make it last. All hands in high spirits and the sea stories are really flying. I'm wearing boots, but we'll soon get into my bathing suit if they keep it up. Boy, oh boy, what a show. They got hit from all sides and didn't know what way to turn, so they went home. And they're still dropping bombs and charges. One came steaming by and dropped eighteen and nothing flat. Then a squadron of planes swooped down and let go their load counted ninety-six so far near us. Jean says distant, thunder below is a very pleasant sound. I'm telling you that even a near one that just shakes us up a bit sounds like putting your head underwater in a bathtub and somebody hitting the side with a sledgehammer. It's hot as hell, with sweat bubbling out. The air is foul and getting hard to breathe. I feel like I just ran five miles, all winded and so sleepy that I could fall asleep standing up. The Japanese post-action report from the captain of the Riku Maru shows that he capably handled the damage control on his crippled tanker. The barb's single-hit amidships blew a gaping hole twenty feet in diameter, but fortunately his ship was in ballast. There was no explosion or fire. He quickly righted her by counter-flooding. With her engines aft, he had lost none of his power, even with the drag due to the yawning hole. The big Riku had more speed than the smaller or older freighters. Messages reveal the scramble returning to Takao. Their convoy commander was lost when the sea lion sank the lead escort, the mine layer Shirataka. The Maru radioed her need for immediate dry docking on arrival. The Takao Naval District requested her location. They had received a message at 0700 stating that the MI-15 convoy was under submarine attack at latitude 2111 north, longitude one twenty one eleven east. A hunter-killer group of six ships patrolling off Takao had been dispatched to sink the sub. This group was expected to be on the scene by afternoon. Just before sunset, the RICO arrived at Takao. The dry dock was open and pilots moved the RICO in. On the blocks, with the dock pumped dry, floodlights revealed that the damage was more extensive than they had thought. Many spaces were leaking through cracked plates. Repairs would take over three months. Postscript the air raids of 10, 11, and 12 October 1944 caused no damage to the Rico Maru. Due to more urgent work, a temporary patch was installed, and the captain was ordered to take his ship up Formosa straight to the shipyard at Keelung, Formosa to complete repairs. He left Takao at full speed without an escort, his ship leaking. The 150-mile trek was a continuous fight to save the ship. Just before dawn, as she was gradually sinking, he drove her hard aground on the rocks outside of Kielung. She was never bombed after she was beached. On 6 March 1945, the Japanese gave up all attempts to salvage her. After World War II, the Joint Army-Navy Assessment Committee assessed the Riku Maru as a marine casualty instead of giving proper credit to the barb for damaging her. A reassessment in 1956 credited aircraft with sinking her. Though she had never been attacked or damaged by aircraft after the Barb's torpedo hit. Chapter 7 Into the Fire 31 August, time 1349. Captain, smoke sighted to the southwest. I'm changing course to head that way, but haven't speeded up. Lots of planes still scouring the area. Sea is calm, visibility perfect. Hooking my left arm over the periscope handles, I made a fast swing around the sky, searching for nearby planes. Bob, Ed, and I estimated the black smoke to be about seven miles away. We could tell from the smoke trail on a flat sea with no wind that his course was a bit south of west. At the torpedo data computer, Max inserted an average target speed of approximately nine knots. After whirling a few dials, he calculated that the barb should head southwest for five hours at full speed to close to a firing position. Minor adjustments would be made as we refined target course and speed. That would leave us with a flat battery if we were depth-charged. A risky situation, but nothing ventured. Oh, hell, let's go for it. We went to a depth of one hundred fifty feet to avoid any planes spotting our wake in the glassy sea. I told the crew we had a far-off target, that we were all tired, and that we would slow once an hour to come up for a look. Except for the watch, they were to stand easy on all stations and try to sleep at their posts. I told the helmsman to wake us in an hour. Ed went below to the wardroom to flake out on the transom. The tracking party curled up on the steel conning tower deck and slept like babes. Time, fifteen hundred. Reveille for the tracking party. We went up to sixty feet to check, then went back down. We were plugging along. Next check, sixteen hundred. Jane, this is the screwiest approach I've ever seen in all my years as a training officer. Ed, chalk it off to the unusual. It may get screwier. As the remnants of the MI-15 convoy returned to T'Kal for protection, counteraction against our two wolf packs was underway. Captain Kozu Suzuki, commander of the forty-fifth minesweeper squadron, happened to be aboard the Hinode Maru, minesweeper number twenty, patrolling off Takao. The naval district commander relayed the MI fifteen Convoy Zero Seven Hundred message, under attack by submarine at twenty one eleven North, one twenty one eleven East, and ordered Suzuki's hunter killer decoy attack group to sink the submarine. He headed his force toward the location using a formation that had been extremely successful in luring submarines into a hunter-killer trap. His tactics were to station two special low-profile anti-sub escorts 300 meters broad on each bow, one of his sleeper anti-sub escorts 5 kilometers on the port beam of his decoy flagship, the Maru, and the other two sleeper escorts 5 kilometers on each quarter. The Hinode was a huge, wooden, ocean-going trawler that had been built in 1930 with a forecastle, mast, well deck, high bridge and funnel, and poop deck. She gave the appearance of being a much larger ship. Converted to a naval minesweeper in 1941 after Pearl Harbor, she had her crew augmented to 28 men when losses due to subs became serious. Assigned as a hunter-killer decoy, her extra crew became lookouts. Thus, she was a perfect convert to minesweeping, and her shallow draft and coal-fired boilers made her perfect for use as a smoking decoy. Time 12.30 Hinode Maru lookout sighted three vessels with black and yellow vertically striped sails. These were lifeboats from the Okuni Maru. The Hinode took fifty-seven men on board. Time 13.30 the Hinori Maru sighted minesweeper Number 21, one of five escorts for the ten merchant ships of the MI-15 convoy, picking up survivors. The fifty-seven men were then transferred. Time 1615. The sea lion, still submerged, noted smoke growing larger. Then a mast appeared coming directly at her. Eli Reich started the approach, thinking she was a merchantman, Time 1707. It's an anti-sub-vessel, reports Captain Reich. High forecastle, poop, bridge structure, and stack. Deck gun mounted forward. A rangefinder located atop the pilot house. Steady course. Time 1719. Fired three torpedoes at 1,500 yards. Port track 135. At about hitting time, a lookout pointed. Target turned left and headed at us. Went deep and rigged for depth charge. He passed down our port side, crossed our stern, and dropped two depth charges on our starboard quarter, then went away. Maybe he's not sure he had a sub. Time, eighteen hundred. Heard ten underwater explosions. Time, seventeen hundred. Reveille for the barb tracking party. The target had changed course to northwest, which would help us close. We would still have to hurry to reach a firing point. Next look was in half an hour. Time, seventeen thirty. Our target was a small freighter with two escorts on his quarters. Mast, funnel, mast, three-island superstructure. Man, battle stations, torpedoes. All ahead full. Make ready tubes four, five, six. Angle on the bow is about ninety degrees. Not sure how many escorts, for we can't waste time looking. After four hours of chasing, this is going to be a photo finish. I hope. Time, seventeen forty. Have the electricians get me a battery gravity reading. Maneuvering room reports the battery gravity has dropped from 12.50 to 11.05. At 10.80, the battery is flat and we stop, sir. Okay, hang in there. Max, how's your setup checking? TDC and plot are right on. Target course of 2.52 is correct within one degrees. Speed jibes to within one-tenth of a knot. In ten minutes, we'll be at our closest possible shooting position, 1,200 yards. After that, the range opens and the firing bearing worsens. Sound reports that pinging well astern is diminishing. Time, 17.50. Excellent. We've passed under the starboard quarter escort. The coast is clear. We have met the enemy, and he is ours. Shift four cases of beer from the shower to the cooler. open the outer tube doors. Set torpedo depth at four feet. all ahead, one-third. Time for a look. Final bearing, Captain. From my crouched position, I flopped the scope handles down as they cleared the deck, glued my eye to the eyepiece, and rode it up till it was clear of the water. Something was wrong. I swung the scope around from side to side, withdrew my eye, blinked and looked down again. I banged the handles against the scope in vain. Damn, down scope. Jean, what's wrong? Ed, I can't see. There's something covering the scope. I don't know what it is or what's wrong. Time 17:53. Captain, range is steady. We've got to shoot or it'll open. Listen, Bob, same thing again, but this time raise the scope and dip it on my signal. Maybe we can shake whatever it is loose. Up scope. Nope, still there. Try again. Sir, range is opening slowly. We're losing bearing. I burst out laughing. (laughs) Hey, we've encountered the latest fiendish anti-sub weapon of the Japanese. A patrolling bird. As the scope clears the water, he or she is there and lights on it, draping his or her tail over the slanting exit eyepiece. Let's foil it. Ed, control one scope while Bob controls the other. Bob, have your scope clear the water as a feint, a fraction before Ed's scope, which I'll use for shooting. Understood? Range is opening, 1,260 yards. Time, 1759. All ready. Up scopes. Camera, quick. Slapping it on the scope, I took a photo of the bird, took off the camera, and swung the scope to the target. Final bearing. Mark. Down scopes. Set. Fire four. Whoosh. Jolt. Fire five. Fire six. Dick, what's the hitting time? Seventy-five seconds, sir. Sonar has all torpedoes hot, straight, and normal. Ed, Bob, same deal on the scopes. I can't miss this. Fifteen seconds. Up scopes. His guns are manned fore and aft. There are about fifteen lookouts, dressed in white, on a catwalk above the bridge. An officer is looking. Wham! My God, right under the bridge. Bodies are flying through the air. Wham! Water spout at the well deck. Wham! Under the forecastle. The gun crew's been blown overboard. The ship's breaking into a V. Quick, Ed, take a look. Everybody in the conning tower, take a quick peek through one scope or the other. It was soon time to stop being spectators and check on the escorts. They were coming fast. We had no time for a down-the-throat shot. I had Paul take her deep, to 340 feet, using a 25-degree down angle. We moved at flank speed with full right rudder rigged for depth charges, silent running with all watertight doors closed tight. I had the sonars keep on different escorts and give us the bearing quickly whenever it was constant, meaning it was heading in to drop on us. It looked as though the crew of one of the sub-chasers was greasing up their depth-charge racks. There was nothing to do now except have the yeoman break out our depth-charge forms, which bureaucracy required. Time, 18.04. Thunder below. None too close. One hundred, one hundred fifty yards. Time, 18.24. Sound reports help is arriving from the east and northwest, all pinging. Ed realized I knew that I had goofed and misjudged this one. That had been no small freighter. That was bait. I had never picked up any escorts but the two sub-chasers. The rest of the escorts were sleepers and probably first team. We lacked enough juice in the battery to fight them. I told Ed I planned to tiptoe and get the hell out of here with a whole skin. Skipper, you do just that. We crept out at minimum speed, heading northwest on the assumption the first team would not search where they had just come from. I had the word passed for all hands to be quiet, no unnecessary talking, and to take off their shoes. Paul eased her down to 375 feet, concerned about the pressure on our thin-skinned sub, but we had been that deep before. We watched for leaks and any signs of the decks starting to rumple. Gradually we pulled clear. The anti sub group found something to their liking astern of us and pounded it with fifty-eight depth charges. Darkness fell with a full moon and no clouds. As we surfaced with the group five miles astern on the horizon, two engines started charging the batteries. The other two on propulsion sped us westward, evading various small patrol craft, to a new scouting line that Ed set up. 1. SEPTEMBER After some two hundred bombs and depth charges the day before, we looked forward to a peaceful interlude well clear of any enemy bomb sites. Studying the charts spread over the wardroom table, Ed wondered whether we had a good spot or were jumping from the frying pan into the fire. Commodore, only test and time will tell. Test and time told us to act like a yo-yo, evading air cover by diving and surfacing some nine times during the day before dinner. It was exhausting being the fox for the hounds. Taking our leisure, we unfolded our napkins as a platter of steaks was served. Suddenly, left full rudder, all ahead flank! Captain, periscope, starboard beam! Dashing to the bridge with my napkin tucked in my belt, I met Tuck, who had the situation well in hand. Chick, the officer of the deck, looked a bit nonplussed, almost shell-shocked. As he was the only officer not yet qualified as submarine watch officer, we put him on watch with Tuck as a backup. Thank God! I don't understand the psychology of it, but from my experience in peacetime battleships and destroyers, I became convinced that three-dimensional operations are more demanding. Perhaps it's a David against Goliath syndrome, or God helps those who help themselves, or the loneliness of knowing there's no outside help that quickens one's reaction time, but it's there. No one, regardless of rank or other experience, becomes qualified in subs until he achieves that, for one hole sinks a submarine." Good evasion, Tuck. Return to course. After dinner, Max relieved Tuck and Chick. Dusk was approaching. I wolfed down half my dinner before joining Max on the bridge. Dawn and dusk, the most dangerous times for a surfaced sub due to the fading visibility, normally found me sitting topside searching the sky and nearby waters for floating mines or periscopes. That evening the sky was sprinkled with cumulus clouds much like a field of cotton. Time, 1848. Max's strident, Plane astern! Clear the bridge! Dive! Dive! had me landing in the conning tower before the klaxons sounded. Lookouts came tumbling down, and Max deftly slapped the hatch shut and gave a powerful spin to the wheel, tightly engaging its locking lugs. Up scope! Left full rudder! As the scope came out of its well, we heard a tremendous roar as the plane passed over us, but no bombs fell. Peering through the eyepiece, I saw that the plane was heading straight for the Tunny, four miles ahead. I could see the Tunny still on the surface. She hadn't seen him. Jean, can't we warn her? Ed asked. It was too late. He was dropping bombs already. As the Tunny submerged, we heard the rumble of explosions and I saw the Tunny's stern rising. I told Ed to take a quick look. A bomb must have exploded right under her tail. Ed backed off and shook his head. It looks bad, and that plane is still around. Time 1952. I watched through the periscope as another salvo of bombs landed on the Tunny. Enemy aircraft had marked her position with float lights, and another string appeared to indicate her course on diving. Then they dropped a green magnesium parachute flare on her position. Jean, try to contact the Tunney by sonar, Ed said. Tell her to stay deep and that she's marked with float lights and flares. We'll let her know by sonar when the coast is clear and it's safe to surface. Meanwhile, Barb will stand by nearby to render assistance. Kerrigan failed to make sonar contact. Time 2200. Air cover cleared out. No lights around. We surfaced. Couldn't make radar contact on the tunny. We also tried radio, but no contact. Time 2110. The queenfish, on the ball as usual, made contact on a convoy at the astonishing range of 34,000 yards. Ever a team player, Elliot quickly sent us a contact report. Since the barb was miles astern, he crossed the northeasterly base course of the zigzagging ships to attack from the port flank. Forty minutes later, the barb made contact and moved in to attack from the starboard flank when the queenfish finished. Time 2231 The queenfish fired four torpedoes, ranged 3,200 yards and 95-degree port track. The kashi sighted the torpedo's wake passing to starboard and ordered a 45-degree course change to port toward the queenfish. One torpedo hit in the Omoroyama Maru, which the queenfish saw and the barb heard. The kashi fired a red rocket flare signaling submarine attack. A second explosion followed. Time 2250. The Queenfish reported her attack completed, fresh out of torpedoes. Ed directed her to trail. Now it was the Barb's turn. Time 2254. Battle stations, torpedoes! I waited for the gongs to stop, then announced to the crew, "'Men, we have a nice fat convoy of five big tankers and six or seven escorts. Queenfish hit one that hasn't slowed, so they're alerted. We may have a bit of tangle, but oil for the lamps of Japan makes the Barb thumb or nose at anyone. On your toes, we're heading in!' I told Bob to make ready all six tubes forward and the two after torpedoes, leaving only one torpedo forward for a reload, which we might need. If we do, make it quick. Understood. And tell Jackson and Raglan to put four cases of beer in the cooler. Muffled cheers were heard from below. Bob, if you can spare Brooks, send him up. With Tuck on the target-bearing transmitter, I need a quartermaster up here to help me keep track of this flock of escorts. I'll cross between the starboard ones to shoot the lead tankers. Time 2323. The barb bored in at full speed, with the convoy heading north and zigging. We were almost sandwiched between two escorts. As we were working out the setup to shoot the after-tanker in the starboard column and the big one just ahead of her in the center, Tuck yelped, That big ship between the columns is an aircraft carrier! Ye gods, a flat-top! A submariner's dream, the chance of a lifetime, appeared before us. One of His Imperial Majesty's carriers was protecting this important convoy. Tuck shouted, We've got to get closer. It's hard to line her up in this poor light. Tuck, the wind's backed around to the east. We're riding in like a whitecap. With a course change, we'll be spotted. Brooks tugged at my trouser like, Sir, the frigate has speeded up. She's got a bone in her teeth heading this way. There was only one thing to do. All ahead, flank speed! The Barb surged forward, shook her tail, and flauntingly crossed ahead of the oncoming escorts. Seconds gelled. Miller, the port lookout, eased the stress. Golly, if Mother could only see her little boy now. I promised her I wouldn't do anything rash. Time 23.31. Bob, I've got a perfect overlap of the carrier ahead of the tanker's bow. Tuck will stay on the tanker's bow constantly. Spread the six fish across it. We won't have time for a 2nd setup. This damned frigate is coming into ram. He's on our port quarter. Give me a quick range to him, then the tanker and carrier, and we'll shoot. All ahead one-third. Open the outer tube doors. Ranges, escort 700 yards, tanker 1800, carrier 2100. Time 2332. Fire! The first torpedo hooshed out with a jolten broach. QB sonar, get on that torpedo. First looks erratic. Watch her for circling. Brooks grabbed me. Look, the frigate's going to ram. A single glance was enough. Take her down, Tuck. Then I jumped down the hatch. Clear the bridge! Dive! Dive! The lookouts, plus Brooks and Tuck, came dropping down. Tuck pulled the hatch shut while Brooks spun the locking wheel. The torpedoes were still being spurted out of the tubes as Doc pushed the firing plunger at ten-second intervals, so I couldn't change course. Sonar reports first torpedo erratic to port. Did not circle. Rig ship for depth charge and silent running. As we went under, the frigate filled the whole glass on the periscope. Ed was handling its raising and lowering. Bob was orchestrating the torpedo firing, a perfectionist maestro. Paul, level off at 365 feet. Down scope. Ed, how's it all the way? He's sure to drop. No use looking at the targets. Torpedo run time's not up. Should be about two minutes. As Bob shot the last torpedo, I shouted, There goes Annie B. Go clobber her, Annie! Sonar reports erratic torpedo steady on southerly course. The rest are all hot, straight, and normal. Then, high-speed screws coming in pinging, short scale on port quarter. Bearing is steady. Lock all watertight doors and lower conning tower hatch. Hang on! Time, twenty three thirty four. Boom! Dick called out, Hidden Tanker. Time twenty three thirty four point zero nine. Wham hidden tanker. My god, she must have exploded. The bar bounced around with the concussion. Our grins were cut short by the nerve wracking sound of propellers passing directly overhead. Stand by Dead Silence. On board the surfaced queenfish, trailing the convoy, Elliot and his executive officer had their eyes glued on the convoy. Harry Higgs, after careful study, announced, "'Captain, there's a carrier smack in the middle of the convoy. Boom! Barbs hit the trailing tanker. Boom! Wham! Good Lord, that second hit! She's exploded! Look at that giant fireball! Yeah, it's over five hundred feet in diameter! Must be a million gallons of gasoline going up!' On the Kashi, Admiral Izo, having settled the convoy back on its prescribed track without a loss after the Queenfish attack— was startled by the explosion of the Azusa and signaled, Emergency Turn Starboard. On the Uño, the officer of the deck logged, recognized a column of water starboard-side Azusa, judged to be torpedo damage. Azusa blew up on second torpedo attack. On a raft 125 miles to the southwest, Al Albury felt the great loneliness of the night and sea. Soon I will drink the seawater and know the terror of insanity. The specter of the choppy waters, the last living gasp, the drowning. Haunt me. On the bar, breathless seconds passed as we looked at each other. Sonar reports high-speed screws reversed course. What happened? He didn't drop. Time 2335. Cheers from stem to stern. Three hits in the carrier. Shankles, take your rudder off. Steady as you go. Jean, I think we were saved by the tanker exploding just as the skipper was ready to let go. We don't know what's happening on the surface, but from the jolt we got down here, it must have been enough to distract anyone. When things had calmed down, Ed added, By the way, Jean, what did you mean when you said there goes Annie B, go clobber her Annie? Ed, it's the skipper's traditional privilege to name one torpedo. The men do it too. Annie B is Anne Brindupke. She and her husband Brindy are old friends from Bonita days. She lives near us in Annapolis. After Brindy shoved off on his last patrol, I noted they changed his orders to refit at a forward base on his return. Knowing she's like a hen on hot bricks when he's on patrol, I dropped her a line. You know, big help me. I told her not to worry. With the slowness of mail, she might not hear from him for a long time. What a boo-boo. The Tullaby was sunk on that patrol. So I printed Annie B. on that torpedo. When she slammed into the carrier, I said a silent prayer of sweet revenge. God bless. Sonar reports high-speed screws have swung around and are headed for us again, pinging short scale. Dave, what's the bathothermograph doing? Have we a temperature gradient? Isotherm 84 degrees from surface to 40 feet. Down here, 65 degrees. Good thermocline, 19 degrees. Great. That should deflect the accuracy of his attack. The sonar operator took his earphones off and bellowed, He's dropping! Hang on! Here they come! And come they did, his unwelcome calling cards too close for comfort. The indicator showed them deep and to starboard. The cloying cork dust was a nuisance, filling the air and sticking to the cold sweat on the men's bodies. Amongst all the hell, there was a cheering undertone, breaking up noises, hissings, underwater explosions, whistling, crackling, crunching, sure signs that a ship was sinking. Caught in the cavernous maw of the depths, bulkheads collapse and boilers are crushed even before the ship accelerates and crashes against the ocean bottom. How great can personal and impersonal emotions become? Depth charges bursting all around, yet my mind was keenly alert as I directed evasive courses, speeds, feints, coaching the well-honed barb team so the ship and her men and I would survive to rescue others. Yet a small part of my subconscious pondered the fate of the carrier that, head high, proudly steamed along just four minutes ago. Now she was writhing in her death agonies, her planes slithering over the side." The ugliness of destruction was tempered by the sobering knowledge that such planes could deal death no more. Random depth charges were felt far off, not close. Sonar reports destroyer turning and heading back at us. Dave, give me a course from plot to pass within fifty yards astern of the tanker's position when hit. Bob, I'm cutting as close as I dare to the stern of the tanker. There should be something burning up above. I hope she can't follow without getting singed. On the Unyo, after the Azusa exploded, the hydrophone room detected a torpedo sound just abaft the starboard beam. The emergency alarm was pressed, indicating the sub's direction on the bridge battle board. Captain Ikuzo Kimura ordered, LEFT FULL RUDDER! BATTLE STATIONS! The Unyo had turned less than ten degrees when the torpedo hit below the steering room on the starboard side. Two seconds later, a second torpedo hit the main engine room. Captain Kimura was furiously doling out myriad orders over the damage control circuit that was feeding information to the bridge, fighting to keep his unyo alive. Reports kept jamming in. Steering, main engines, auxiliary machines stop functioning and are unfunctional. All lights are out. Fires are extinguished in all boiler rooms and all main valves closed. Eighteen dead in engine room, one in steering. Just then, the third torpedo hit near the stern. The Unyo heeled over five degrees to starboard, righted herself, and began to sink stern first, slowly. To prevent further attacks, Captain Kimura ordered, Commence volley-firing starboard cannons at the prearranged range. Point abaft the beam. On the Kashi, Admiral Aizo canceled any attempt to assist the Azusa, burning ferociously from bow to stern with a tremendous lake of fire around her. There could be no survivors from that holocaust. He radioed the stopped Unyo on the voice circuit, No response. He then spoke in uncoded plain language to all ships on the voice circuit to continue with Z-Plan. Tailing escorts, Frigates 21 and 27 to assist Uño, the Vice Admiral, pick up survivors and pass this message. Land-based air cover is requested. Upon receiving this message, Frigate 21 passed it by blinker to the Uño and notified the Kashi of her depth-charge attack, believed to have sunk the submarine as it disappeared off sonar near the Azusa. The barb was deep now and running fast, cutting across the formation close astern of the tanker. A second set of noises, mixed with the rumble of the depth charges astern, told the death knell of the second ship as she began to break up. Bob, secure from depth charge and silent running. Paul poked his head up through the lower conning tower hatch. He was soaked to the skin. Had another cable pushed in down here, causing a fire hose at this depth. Tight now, but control room bilges are flooded. We're a bit heavy. I'll start pumping now. One air compressor foundation is cracked. We can weld it later. Good work. Deep inside the Uño, a courageous damage control battle was being waged with a limited number of emergency battery lights. Her main emergency lighting system had been blown out. Bulkheads were being shored up. Working in waist-high water at times, sailors repaired leaks. Electricians, knee-deep in saltwater, risked their lives connecting live substitute cables from a gasoline generator topside. Lighting was desperately needed. Depth bombs for the planes, stored in ready lockers on the hangar deck, had broken loose, rolling around, banging the elevators. Three dropped into the sea, and one exploded. Smoke enveloped the entire deck leading to the main engine room, and carbon monoxide gas was being generated. All gas detectors were useless without electricity. Watertight doors were reinforced. Time 2350. The Azusa sank with all hands. On the Uno, the auxiliary generator began working. One radio message was sent from the after transmitter room. Then gas forced the radio men to abandon the room and set up a portable telegraph set. Time 2355. The Uno's sinking stopped. This was confirmed and spurred all hands to extra efforts. Sea level aft was at the hangar deck. Frigates twenty-one and twenty-seven circled, depth charging. Seventeen September, time zero 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 five. The Unyos' reinforced bulkheads collapsed. Sinking increased. Carbide in the damage control warehouse was underwater and began emitting gas. Brave volunteers carried it out and threw it into the sea. Crew members began pumping water out of the passageways in the sealed compartments. All secret documents were locked in the vault. In the barb, Ed, Bob, and I conferred over the area chart. "'Bob, we've a torpedo forward and two aft. I'd like another crack at those last four tankers. How much time can you give me?' Ed looked at me. "'Not satisfied yet? With three fish left?' "'Captain, at nineteen knots we should have shoved off ten minutes ago.' With the vagaries of wind, sea, tides, and currents, plus this threatening typhoon, our search area is enormous. I couldn't deny the itch for action, but neither would I deny priority to our mission of mercy. Ed, we don't need orders. All our hearts bleed for the poor wretches, wherever they may be, imprisoned on their flotsam for this, their sixth day. Ed nodded approval. Time zero zero forty. At periscope depth, a quick swing around revealed only one escort in the light of the new moon, which was very faint. Random depth-charging continued. Bring her up to forty-five feet for radar. Two pips were spotted at eleven thousand yards, probably picking up survivors. With no burning oil, we surfaced and took off at flank speed. We were submerged only one unforgettable hour. Now hear this. "'Barb teamwork tonight was perfection. I feel sure we sank a 22,500-ton carrier of the Otaka class and a large tanker of the Etukasima class—10,000 or more tons. I am proud of each and every one of you. You know how I feel. I know you're exhausted, but we must be ready at dawn, so now I ask you to turn to for half an hour and make the Barb ship shape for our guests.' At 0130, we'll splice the main brace, then hit the hay until dawn when the rescue lookout stations will be manned. Secreted away, Tomzik wrote Made ready bow and stern tubes. Fired all six forward as we were diving with destroyers coming right down our throat. Five hits three on a flat top and two on a tanker that blew up. We heard them breaking up. <laughs> Wahoo! Always wanted to hit a carrier. Went way deep and the ash cans commenced. They're still dropping and coming closer, counted fifty-eight so far. We've lost them. They've stopped dropping. Oops, I'm wrong. There's another, and another. Surfaced with all four generators on the line breezing out of here. Two destroyers astern. Total ash cans for that lovely picnic? Sixty-three. Squared things away in the room. At zero-one-thirty interrupted again, but this time it was fun. Our ration of beer and a shot of whiskey for good measure if wanted. Alone after lunch, I kidded Ragland. After your last patrol, your third in Barb, did you know you had orders to go to new construction? I did? Yes, but your shipmates came to me and asked me to stop the transfer because you owed them so much money from your gambling debts. They did? Yes, they did. And I did. Now, Ragland, you need a winning streak, or the option of no more gambling, or else you'll never leave Barb. When are you going to pay them? After this patrol, Captain. Will your pay cover all your losses? Sir, if I tell you, will you promise not to tell them?' "'Okay, shoot. Lego told me I would get orders to new construction. I had enough money to pay them, yet I wanted to make this last patrol with you. So I told them I was broken leaving. They told me they'd fix that.' "'They sure did. You hoodwinked us all. Honestly, what am I going to do with you?' "'Captain, I heard that you can't have more than four patrols in command, so this is the last one for you, too. "'Raglin, you handcuff me with your loyalty. Suppose the Admiral lets me have a fifth. What do you do?' Then I don't pay them all I owe. You've promised you won't tell. You're an absolute charlatan. Now I'm an accomplice. Why don't you strike for a legal rating? Paul Monroe came in just then and sat down. What's on your mind, my diving officer whiz? Just that, Captain. This is my sixth patrol, and orders are in for my going to new construction. Tom King will take over my jobs, and all our combat I've been in the control room diving or standing by to dive. And doing an outstanding job. So... I'd like to see the action topside just once. Then I could describe it to my wife. Understood. For our next night's surface attack, you'll be on the bridge with me as my TBT operator. I've seen you talking with Tuck Weaver when he had the job. You're a perfect watch officer. Cool and collected. No problem there. If we're forced down, instead of staying in the conning tower, I'd like you to drop below and keep an eye on Tom. I've depended a lot on your handling barb submerged when we're being bashed. I'll tell the officers that this is a one-shot change. Jack can stand by in the conning tower. Thanks a million, sir. Time, 1300. Captain, William Fannin has sighted a convoy's smoke coming out from the coast, broad on our starboard bow. I've gone ahead flank speed. We can't cut in. The water is too shallow. Great, Bill. Station the tracking party. Coming up. A long look through the high periscope revealed at least five separate wisps of smoke. Jim, I'll leave the high periscope to you for tracking. There are at least five big ships— Your range is now 15 miles, 30,000 yards. Until we have a mast sighted or radar contact, take your bearings on the lead smoke. They're on a southerly course. Send off a report, now estimating speed at 10 knots. Tell the loopers we'll send reports every 20 minutes and hold off attack until one makes contact. Have them home in on our radar. We're probably the only one with an accurate navigational position due to radar fixes on the coastal islands. On the bridge, visibility was excellent, the sea a bit rough with whitecaps, which would help. Looking through his binoculars on the bridge rail, Jack said, "'I can make out at least seven separate smoke sources now. What's your plan, sir?' "'Barring aircraft interference, we'll close until we can clearly make out the masts and funnels of some ships. We'll end around at about 20,000 yards. They must be headed for Takao or Manila, evidently having run down the China coast. For Keelong, they'd be heading east, for Hong Kong, southwest.' This allows the pack only the early evening for attack before we're in the minefields. Our job is to get ahead, cross over onto their starboard side, and make a submerged attack. This will drive them farther away from the China coast into the arms of the Queenfish and Pakuda. The convoy commander from the 1st Japanese Surface Escort Force got his convoy, Mo Ta 30, Mojito Takao, underway in single file on New Year's Day to pass through the slot in the heavily mined Tsushima Strait. This time he had frigates twenty six, thirty six, his flagship, thirty nine and sixty seven, and four patrol craft with sonar and depth charges. Most of the ships of this important convoy were armed. The most important and largest, the Ano Maru, nine thousand two hundred and fifty six tons, was loaded with critical military supplies, kamikaze pilots, and troops for the reinvasion of Luzon. Built in 1913, she was a beautiful ship with a speed of 15.5 knots, length 463 feet, beam of 60 feet, and a 30-foot draft. He planned to protect her especially with his four smaller escorts. Next in the column was the Hisagawa Maru, a passenger freighter, 6,886 tons, loaded with troops, horses, and vehicles. Following her came the Shinyo Maru, 6,892 tons, on her maiden voyage. Completed 7 December 1944, she was loaded fully with troops and weapons and ammunition. Behind her was the tanker Manju Maru, 6,515 tons, and the freighter Rashin Maru, 5,454 tons, with 1,042 troops on board. In the lesser tonnage category followed the tanker Hikoshima Maru, 2,854 tons, and the freighter Miho Maru, 2,857 tons. En route, the tanker Sanyo Maru, 2,854 tons, would join them, coming from Dairon, near Port Arthur, with aviation gas. The 1,200-mile journey would end at Takao, January 9. Clear of the straits, the convoy crossed to Korea and thence to the inside passage along the China coast, protected by a special heavy air cover for these vital cargoes destined eventually for the Philippines. The convoy anchored at night along the China coast. 8 January, time 0800. Mota 30 departed from its Fushu anchorage, where it had been well protected from the sea by the surrounding islands. This would be its last day and night underway down the Formosa Strait before it arrived in Takao. Clearing the harbor, the long column of ships steamed south. When the peaks of Haitan Island were fifteen miles away, the Commodore signaled to his long column of ships, EXECUTE FORMATION DOG, BASE COURSE 140 TRUE, ZIG PLAN B, THREE COLUMNS, STARBOARD MARUZ, SHINYO, SANYO, HIKOSHIMA, CENTER MARUZ, ANYO, WITH FOUR ESCORTS, RASHIN, MAIHO, PORT MARUZ, Hisagawa MANJU. THE AFTERNOON DRAGGED ON FOR THE BARB AT FLANK SPEED. A WARM, WALLOWING DAY WITH THE SEAS ASTERN AND NO AIRCRAFT WAS AN ANSWER TO OUR PRAYERS. COMING DOWN THE BACKSTRETCH, THE CORKS WERE FORGING AHEAD. What a deadly race! The flow of information going to the loopers could not be beat. As an older, thinner-skinned boat than her sturdier sisters, the barb had one advantage. Her bridge structure above the hull, called the sail, had not been lowered. Being higher, it resembled a junk when seen from a distance. As the race went on for hours, it seemed incredible that we watched the masts and funnels of the eight ships amassed without being attacked.' Infrequent quick bearings from the high periscope, radar ranges, and my angles on the bow from the bridge provided neat solutions of course and speed. At fifteen hundred, good old Barb was out in front, starting a wide sweep around the final turn to position herself from port to starboard for the blistering pace down the homestretch. "'Come on, Queerfish! Come on, Peculiar!' Laughing, Jack dropped his binoculars from his sky search. "'Captain, you sound just like a jockey!' I am, and I want this filly of ours to show the Japanese how she can strut her stuff. She's unbeatable, sir. You'd better relax. Both submarines were way away. At sixteen hundred, the Barb was still ahead after rounding the final turn, poised on the starboard bow of the convoy. Her head was held high; she was determined to prevent the convoy from gaining the shelter of the shallows of the China coast again. Time sixteen twelve. Bridge radio: Picuda has contact. "'Man battle stations torpedoes! Jim, send out the message to the loopers! Barb diving to attack starboard flank eight-ship convoy, speed ten knots, base course one-four-zero, eight escorts, no air cover. Caution, we're in the U.S. blind bombing zone!' After the convoy had cleared the shallow China coastal shelf, entering waters where a submarine could submerge, a depth charge was dropped about every half hour. I mused on the efficacy of this. Were they trying to frighten the foreign devils away? Did it enhance their courage or self-esteem? Authors note, Due to the laying of mines in the Formosa Strait, the area between latitudes 2230 North and 2500 North was a zone in which U.S. aircraft could bomb any target without first identifying it as enemy. Submariners, therefore, entered this zone at their own risk. Time 1618. Bridge, Queenfish and Pakuda acknowledged our message. Let's go, Jack. Take her down. Now submerged at long last, we headed in at full speed. Jim, it would be a snap to get into the center of this group and wreak havoc, but we have a more important job. They must be bent toward our packmates while we reload torpedoes. My plan is to smack the large four-goalpost transport with the four escorts astern of the destroyer with three fish. Then we'll let fly three at the engine's aft freighter or tanker leading the starboard column. She's new. It appears she's fresh out of her building yard on her maiden voyage. That done, we'll turn and shoot three from the stern tubes at the second ship in the starboard column. Pass this to all rooms. Aye, Captain. Dave says plot shows we'll be shooting in forty minutes if the convoy doesn't change its zig plan. The loopers have only until midnight to work on this convoy. By then we'll be in the minefield. Maximum depth during combat will be only one hundred thirty feet... Twilight ends about 1900. Time 1710. Up scope. Bearing. Mark. Down. Range 3200 yards. Angle on the bow 30 starboard. All ahead one third. Make ready all tubes. Coming in nicely. Put four cases of beer in the cooler. Jim, be a touch smarter in handling the periscope. I don't want it to be seen. Four and a half second exposure is what we've trained. Keep your finger on the button. When I say down, I mean down instantaneously, not fumbling for the button. Sorry, sir. Open the outer tube doors forward. Plot any zigs for the next five minutes. Yes, sir. Right now. Squatting on the deck to catch the periscope handles as they cleared the well, I ordered up scope, down. They're zigging away. Plot, you're right on the button. Good work. This will be the final set up and shoot. Set it in fast and accurately. Set torpedo depth 8 feet, divergent spread from aft forward, 50 yards between torpedoes. Everybody ready? Yes, sir. Time, 1724. Up scope. Angle on the bow, 70 starboard. Range, 2,500 yards. Bearing mark, down. Set, fire 1, fire 2, fire 3. Sonar, get on those torpedoes. Jim, we have a full overlap of the big freighter in the port column. The barb shook with joy as the departing torpedoes jolted her and her shipmates. Time 1725. New setup. Up scope. Range 1500 yards. Angle on the bow 60 starboard. Bearing. Mark. Down. Fire four. Fire five. Fire six. Left full rudder. Sonar reports first torpedo salvo all hot, straight and normal. First torpedo, second salvo is running left of course, not circling. Last two are hot, straight and normal. "'Dick yelled, "'Hitting time! Up scope!' "'As explosions shook the ship, I reported, "'Smack the transport just forward of the funnel. Second hit slightly abaft the transport bow. "'The third hit, a tremendous explosion, ducked my periscope. "'Being intent on the coming stern-tube setup "'to which we were swinging, I idly remarked, "'Now that's what I'd call a good solid hit. "'Overhearing someone mutter, "'Golly, I'd hate to be around when he hears a loud explosion. "'What does it take to make him afraid?' I let go my grasp on the scope handles. That comment and the tinkle of glass from a shattered light bulb snapped me out of my fixation on the coming shot. The full force of the explosion dawned as I noted the shocked expressions on the faces of the fire control party. Men had grabbed the nearest support to keep from being thrown off their feet. The depth gauge now read 82 feet versus the 60-foot attack depth ordered. The barb had been forced sideways and down. Captain, forward torpedo room reports cases of canned goods burst open and are being cleared preparatory to reload. After engine room reports section of superstructure probably ripped off. Sonar reports high-speed screws all around. Rig ship for depth charge and silent running. Paul, use two-thirds speed and bring me up to 62 feet. I need a look. Get me a single ping sounding. We may need every foot of depth we can find. 160 feet and mud, sir. Time, 1737. We heard many breaking-up noises as bulkheads bent and collapsed and several thuds as ships or large parts of ships hit bottom. Sonar reports all screws going away. We exploded with cheers. Upscope! Stern of the transport is sticking up at a three-zero angle with two escorts alongside taking off survivors. The bow is in the bottom mud. The brand-new engine's aft freighter exploded. There is nothing left but an enormous smoke cloud and flat flotsam. No lifeboats, nothing alive. Nothing. The large freighter leading the port column is on fire amidships, just above the waterline. Her overlap must have caught the third torpedo that missed ahead of the transport. Captain, can we get a setup for the stern tubes? Hold, Max. The whole formation has turned away and appears to have stopped. Right now the range is too great. All escorts appear to have scampered over to the unattacked side except the destroyer who's searching for us in the wrong spot. Time 1745. I could feel aggressiveness surging through my veins, sensing that the escorts were more scared than we were. Okay, gang, let's go after them. Commence the reload forward. We'll set up on that second freighter in the starboard column as they settle down. Same plan, bend them to port exactly as we have so far. They must not get to the China coast. Time 1747. Up scope. The fire on the freighter is spreading, but she's underway. Uh Uh-oh, the destroyer is speeding up and heading this way. Down scope, secure blowing down tubes. My aggressiveness evaporated as she shifted to short scale for the depth charge run. Paul, take her down to 140 feet. Small down angle, you'll be 20 feet above the mud. All ahead flank, right full rudder. I'm giving him a high-speed turbulent knuckle to ping on. When we've come right 75 degrees, we'll stop and coast as long as you can hold it. Let me know when you need dead slow speed to hold your depth. Sonar says he's coming right at us. "'Captain, this would be a nice spot for a down-the-throat shot "'if we had any torpedoes loaded forward. "'Right you are, Max. "'If, dog-rabbit. "'I'll stop. "'Rudder amidships. "'Steady as you go.' "'We held our breath, hoping the ruse would work. "'The high-speed whine of the destroyer's screws, "'audible through the hull, passed to port and astern. "'Praise the Lord he did not drop. "'Paul was soon asking for speed. "'The situation was well in hand as the destroyer faded astern.' breaking-up noises, continued. With darkness imminent and the seas still rough, the barb secured from battle stations. Our fish reloaded, we ate tuna sandwiches, then surfaced and raced back to the battle. Time 1914 Message! Queenfish attacking, sir! Great! The Pakuta would attack next, then the barb. The others had ended the round and were ahead of the convoy, now reduced to six ships. They would sweep in to attack from the bows with a high relative movement. The barb could not waste time ending around. I had a new concept of attack that I wanted to test. Normally, Japanese convoys had a tendency to place their escorts ahead and broad on the bows with a trailer escort astern. For a dark, moonless night, normal wolf-pack tactics called for the pack to get ahead of the convoy for an attack on the surface. One packmate would then pounce from port or starboard. Attack completed, the next would attack from the opposite side— That completed, the last of the three would attack from either side, depending on the reaction of the convoy. After a sub attacked, she would make another end-around and the procedure would be repeated. All this took a lot of time, which we did not have. The concept I had been fiddling with on paper fitted the Barb's present situation perfectly. We were twenty thousand yards, ten miles, astern of the convoy, making ten knots plus. At flank speed, an end-around would require two and a half hours. The night was dark, with only the light from the stars, so all ships appeared as indistinguishable blobs, the escorts only smaller ones. To save precious time, which was dominated by the position of the minefields ahead, I intended to bring the barb in on the starboard flank. Then we'd fall in astern of the starboard escort line, about two thousand yards from the starboard column of ships, and attack the rear ship at will. Sinking or damaging ships in the rear of a convoy should not have greatly affected the organization of the convoy. To the contrary, hitting the van ships caused pandemonium. If our strike were successful, without counterattack from the escorts, the barb would then move up the escort line to the next ship, repeating the maneuver until grave problems such as illumination arose. She didn't want to be canonized. With the loss of the most important ship, Anyomaru, and the ammunition ship, Shinyomaru, the convoy turned northeastward toward the North Formosan ports, although the minefields, which would deter enemy submarines, were closer. The cliffs, however, did offer some protection. The convoy wheeled around again and reformed the remaining six ships into two columns. With escorts aplenty, the Commodore put one ahead, three on each side, and one trailer. Then he closed the mountainous Formosan coast to ten miles, though in the dark it appeared much closer. All ships increased speed. Time 1934. Message from Queenfish. Attack from port completed. Fired six torpedoes at lead ships each column and four at second ship port column. Incredible misses. Convoy unalerted. Taking trailer station during reload. Hold one. Pakuda reports attacking from starboard bow. I pressed the intercom. Barbarians, Queenfish missed on her attack. Pakuda now attacking. We're next, coming up on the starboard flank. MAN, BATTLE STATIONS, TORPEDOES! Time, 1956. Paul jumped with joy. Did you see that flash when the torpedo exploded on the lead ship? Look! Pakuda socked the second ship! Paul, keep your binoculars on those two ships. I have a pot full of escorts to watch, eight within 5,000 yards. Bridge, Jim, I've been watching the Pakuda attack on the radar scope. She swung around and is very close to an escort which may be after her heading out. We can move in. Understood. Make ready all tubes. Hitting the trail ship to starboard will take the pressure off Pakuda. Left full rudder. Come left 45 degrees. Captain, the ship's hit aren't sinking or slowing. Too bad. Shift over to the target bearing transmitter. We're heading in. Bluth, Lego, as we leave the escort line, concentrate on the escorts astern. I don't want any escorts following us. I'll watch the ships and the trail escort. The convoy appears to be turning left, Jim, closing the coast. Most of the convoy made a 90-degree left turn to close the coast. The Rashin and Manju were able to maintain speed. At five miles off the beach, the convoy resumed its course of 225 true. Frigate 67 assisted the Hisagawa, which was foundering without pumps. The damaged Rashin Maru ran ahead of the convoy, leaving the Maiho as a trailer to port. The starboard column was still intact, led by the Manju, then the Sanyo Maru, and last, the Hikoshima Maru. The two escorts were now to port of the Sanyo. Unseen, the barb was in attack position at 2,150 yards. Open outer doors, tubes one, two, and three. Paul, keep the hairline of your scope steady on the middle of the last ship. Jim, we have a nice overlap with the trail ship in the port column. The other ships on the port side seem to have disappeared. The escorts hang around us like a bunch of flies, as if we're one of them. The seas have calmed, sheltered by the coast. With electric fish and no phosphorescence, they won't know where they came from. Stand by. Final bearing. Mark. Time, 2012. Fire 1. Fire 2. Fire 3. All ahead full. Right full rudder. Rejoin escorts. Set up on ship ahead. Time, 2014. Bridge. All torpedoes normal. 15 seconds to hitting time. Paul yelled, Hit amidships! Hit forward. She's nose diving. Gosh, what a sight. Time, 2015. Captain, hit amidships in the port column. Ship overlapping. What a flash. There's smoke all around her. Paul just stared. I watched our next target as we moved forward up the escort line without opposition. "'Captain, Jim, the radar pip of the target has disappeared. She sank. The pip of the overlapping ship has diminished to half size. She must be sinking.' "'Right, Jim, pass the word well done to all hands. We saw the target sink. The other ship's spot is clouded with smoke. We can't see her. Check later to make sure she's sunk. I need your radar to shift to the starboard middle ship, our next target.' The strategy of joining the convoy as an escort is working to perfection. The escorts are dropping depth charges sporadically. As soon as you have a setup on the next target, I'll take her in. Paul, snap out of it! The damaged destroyer Hamakaze, left by convoy HI 87 at her anchorage ten miles away at Shinshiku, heard the explosions and got underway. Captain, we've got a good setup. The two ships that are left seem to have increased their speed to 12 knots and changed course to 190 true, closing the coast even more. Depth here is about 160 feet. Maher, give me a radar range to the three closest escorts. Escort dead ahead is 550 yards. Escort to starboard is 980 yards. Escort astern is 1,500 yards. The two biggest escorts are near the far side of the target. Others are scattered with apparent confusion, sir. Pressing the intercom I announced, everything is okay, so on your toes, barbarians, we're heading in again. There are only two ships left. Open outer doors on tubes four, five, and six, set depth eight feet. Shankles come left fifty degrees. Lookout, stay in the fore and aft escorts. Paul, put the hairline of your scope on the target's midship. Range? fifteen hundred yards. Set up checks. Final bearing? Mark. Time twenty thirty three. Fire four. Fire five. Fire six. QB sonar on the torpedoes. Right full rudder, all ahead full. Plot, Dave, have your assistant Higgins break out a chart and check our navigational position. These cliffs look like they're hanging right above us. I don't want to run aground. Sonar reports all torpedoes hot, straight, and normal. Time 2034-30 Three perfectly timed hits were followed by a stupendous eruption that far surpassed any Hollywood production. The rarefaction that followed the vice-like squeezing first pressure wave wrenched the air from my lungs. Somehow I formed the words, Oh, head flank! The high vacuum in the boat made people in the control room feel like they were being sucked up the hatch. Personnel in the conning tower who didn't have their shirts tucked in at the belt had them pulled up over their heads. On the bridge, the target now resembled a fantastic, gigantic phosphorus bomb. The volcanic spectacle was awe-inspiring. "'Shrapnel flew all around us. "'Lookouts! Take cover!' "'Pieces sparkled over four thousand yards ahead of us. "'We alternately ducked and gawked. "'The horizon was as bright as day. "'A quick binocular sweep showed only the one ship ahead remaining "'and a few scattered escorts turning away. "'None of the escorts near the exploding ship could be seen. "'Had they blown up? "'Forward Torpedo Room reports that some missiles are striking the hull. "'Aye, tell Stretch Laughter it's flying debris.' At this point, I was ready to haul ashes and take a respite. Not so Paul, who in five patrols in his diving station had never seen a shot fired nor a ship sunk. He really had his guns out. Frantically, he pleaded that we couldn't let that last ship go. Besides, he loved to hear the wham-wham-wham of torpedoes and to see millions of bucks blowing sky-high. It was a good sales talk. Jim, with the escort line evaporating, Barb has become the escort, Commence approach on the last ship. Put us on a course to pass her at no more than two thousand yards. Then I'll cut in for a stern shot. Aye, sir. The destroyer Hamakaze had been underway for only one minute when she saw at fifteen thousand meters the incredible explosion and immense ball of fire as the shipload of aviation fuel changed night into brilliant day. With fourteen knots her maximum speed and an unreliable hull, she stayed on her course for Macau Naval Base in the Pescadores, where she ran aground. Frigate thirty-six scraped her bottom in her haste to get away. The Maru and a smattering of escorts raced on, everyone for herself, leaderless. The exploded target remains sank. The barb had a bone in her teeth as she caught up to the last ship. Now on the port quarter, she was minutes away from a sachet in to fourteen hundred yards. Then, with a swirl and swish of her kilts, she'd turn away and let fly with three torpedoes. Max, have you a setup? Paul's on her constantly. Perfect, sir. Everything checks. No zigs. Time, 2055. Bridge, urgent message from Queenfish. Hey, save one for me. Aye. Check fire. Shankles, resume previous course. Leave the otter tube doors open. Jim, we'll go on ahead to see if any ship got away. Send Elliot, green light, barb attacks completed, good luck. A message came in from the Picuda saying she would follow the Queenfish. We could attack as long as there were ships and torpedoes left. We had had our share, however. We passed the last ship a beam to port at 2,160 yards. What a temptation. Investigating a pip 10,000 yards ahead, we confirmed it to be two escorts hightailing it for Takao. Radar found no others. Time 2125. The Queenfish requested enemy course and speed. She knew the barb had been hitting. Evidently, she was still some distance off. We replied, recommending she catch up to the last ship. Unbeknown to us, the Pakuda was well ahead and out on our starboard flank. Waiting for the finish of the queenfish attack, she was also set up to attack this last ship. Bridge, radar shows one escort on the ship's starboard beam and another escort coming up fast on the same quarter. This last ship will be well protected. All ahead, one-third. We can't wait any longer for Elliot or she'll get away. Set up and give me a range. Paul's steady on. Twenty-six hundred yards. That other escort is only three thousand yards on her quarter. Better shoot. Max, when your generated range is twenty-two hundred yards in about a minute, Paul's giving continuous final bearings. Time, twenty-one fifty-three. Two hits in her starboard quarter. Check fire! We had had only twenty seconds to go before firing. Shocked, we determined that the escort coming in must have been the queenfish. The Pakuda had had a similar shock, for this was the ship she planned to attack next. With no merchant ships left in this area, she went to flank speed and headed for the slot in the minefield, hoping to find something. In the queenfish, Elliot had noted the escort on the starboard beam of the ship and another broad on her bow. Not realizing this was the barb, he considered firing two fish at her, but gave up the idea to concentrate on the close escort. A third potential tragedy had been narrowly averted. The target stopped. The barb stopped. Would she sink? Time 2157. Bedlam commenced. The target was settling, but she courageously opened fire in all directions with automatic weapons— millimeter, 37 millimeter, and at least one gun, three inch or larger. The escort did likewise, firing toward the disengaged side— Jim, hang in there. I believe the queenfish has been forced to dive with all the wild firing going on. So long as the pip is disappearing, we won't attack, but if she doesn't sink, we will. We'll remain stopped until she does. It was weird to be laying to there, listening to the rattle of the 25-millimeter guns, the poomp-poomp-poomp of the 37-millimeter ones, and the blasts from 3- and 4-inch guns. The gun's smoke pungently foul odor, hung heavy throughout the ship. We were protected by that smoke from their guns. Captain, there's no change in target pip. That does it. Queenfish can't attack submerged. All back two-thirds. Jim will back into 1,500 yards to make sure a two-torpedo coup de gras will sinker. Shoot tubes nine and ten. Time, 22.02. Target pip disappearing again. All stop. Check fire. We'll stay here until it's definite. Shore batteries now joined the fray from at least six points along the coast. Fire from their ships, all tracer, was high and erratic. Projectiles flew thick and fast. The shore batteries' fire was novel. Their shells burst as they struck the water a few thousand yards west of us. It seemed that the Japanese believed they were being bombed instead of torpedoed. On the after part of the bridge deck, Paul was manning the after TBT for a stern tube shot. As his first baptism under fire, it was unnerving. Captain! Captain! They're shooting at us! We've got to get out of here! Paul, which way are they shooting? They're shooting from left to right. No, right to left. Some are passing over us. Let's go! I thought I'd have some fun with them. Paul, it's so dark I can't see which way you're standing. Are they shooting from port to starboard or starboard to port? I don't want to turn Barb smack into the line of fire. Dead silence. I could see Paul's shadow approaching me. He kept coming until his face was about six inches from mine. Captain, this is one hell of a time to be specific! We both laughed. Okay, Paul, that ship has her lower decks awash. She's not going anyplace and certainly isn't worth the expenditure of more torpedoes. Bridge, Pip has almost disappeared. Our lifeguard station for tomorrow's carrier bombing raid on Formosa is close to our submerged attack position this afternoon. Time, 2219. Right. Set us on a course for our lifeguard station. Secure stern tubes. Ahead full. Reload torpedoes and put four more cases of beer in the cooler. We'll splice the main brace tonight at 2245. Tomorrow we'll main brace again with the cake at 1100. Scratch one convoy. Secure from battle stations. Time 2245. Splicing the main brace, everyone cheered. It was a day to remember forever. In the wardroom, the usually quiet but always affable Paul related the best day of his life. Holding the barb above the mud in the afternoon action, he surfaced into the fever-pitch battle of the evening, scoring ten hits with twelve torpedoes. We celebrated the great teamwork all around. Joining the general rejoicing throughout the boat, Bluth and Lego had shipmates spellbound with their tales of two lookouts. I wished everyone could have seen the action. Time 2356. The Picuda reported that her attack was completed. She had gone down to the edge of the minefield slot and had found one ship. She attacked and missed with a four-fish salvo. No other ships got away. The Pakuda confirmed the pips of both ships disappeared after our first night attack. Definitely sunk. Unbeknown to the Pakuda, the last ship she attacked foundered and beached in a few hours. This Rashin Maru, damaged by the Pakuda's first attack, had left the convoy earlier. Thus, all the merchant ships were either sunk or beached. The Hamakaze and Frigate 36 extricated themselves. Rashin Maru was salvaged. Lying in my bunk, I critiqued myself about the attacks and what we needed to sharpen. My main concern was the muttering I had overheard. What does it take to make him afraid? Why wasn't I afraid? A skipper should know his ship and her capabilities better than anyone else's. He's at the periscope, he's on the bridge, he sees the enemy, and he has studied him. Years of study, training, and being saturated with a sense of duty to country have molded him into readiness for command and eager acceptance of responsibility. Fear is a natural characteristic of all living creatures, necessary for self-preservation. To win, however, fear must be controlled, enabling expertise to determine when to fight and when to run away, to be able to fight another day. As experience teaches, the subconscious almost automatically weighs the odds. Could it be that my brain was limited to a bucket of fear? If so, my bucket of fear was filled with concern for my wife and youngster so far away. Out on patrol, submerged or on the surface, I was faced with an enemy that I could grapple with intelligently. Having my bucket of fear fully allotted elsewhere gave me an edge, an urge to get the war finished as quickly as possible.